We have the terrible threesome, Mike Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz. We're talking the Great Depression today on episode 3,400 of The Speech Guys. Take that, Joe Rogan. Um, the Depression, not only the Great Depression, but the speech specifically of FDR, uh, the longest serving president in history, his first fireside chat on the banking crisis. That's right. Back in the day when a banking crisis meant losing all $170 you had in your bank account. Can you imagine how simple life was back then? Before you start putting on your favorite FDR t-shirt and favorite FDR hat, we have one more special voice from the past uh, for today's episode, and that is my grandmother, Audrey Tinoco, who uh, was uh, something of a contemporary of FDR, <laughs> contemporary in the sense that she was a uh, wild, crazy teenager during uh, FDR's presidency. So with that being the case, having this unique opportunity to speak directly with someone uh, from this very historical period of the making of America. I took the opportunity to interview Grandma for about an hour last week about the Depression, um, obviously less so from a political standpoint and more so just things she remembers of growing up in Belleville, Illinois during the Depression. So, that's going to be posted as a supplement to this episode. So once you have had your thrill of listening to the main episode here, you can hear uh, Grandma Tinoco, as we call her here, the, about the Depression in our own words. And Ross and Matt listened to uh, the fair a fair amount of it as well. So um, they'll be able to riff a little bit on that. Ross, Matt, how are you feeling tonight? Um, I'm feeling good tonight. I enjoyed Grandma Tinoco's, uh, interview. Um, I was impressed. I was a little bit unsure about how somebody who's 95 years old would manage it, but she seemed to do quite well. I was wondering, how did you do it? Like, how, where did, did you, cause were you next to her? Did you call her? How did that work? Yeah, I, uh, well, first I checked with my mom that she was okay with me putting Grandma on the spot for this. So my grandma, she lives on her own still over in Freeburg, about 25 minutes away from here. Um, so I checked with my mom, made sure that was all kosher here. And once she gave me the okay, I called up grandma to uh, make sure it was something she wanted to do. I figured she'd want to do it. She, um, yeah, I mean, she enjoyed, she's a big talker. Uh, you could probably tell from that. She will chat anyone's ear off. Um, so, yeah, I brought my podcasting microphone over to her last Tuesday, and I had some questions prepared, but as I said, knowing that she's a big talker, I knew that she'd have no problem filling the dead space. She is a natural podcaster. She didn't even need whiskey uh, yeah. to get the job done. Um, <laughs> a lot of the stories that she related, I had already heard before. Um, but obviously getting them all sort of tidied up in this context was, uh, was useful. Um, and I also just recorded about some other things I'd heard before about World War II, um, just to have that recorded for posterity. But, um, 
yeah, that was that was pretty much it. She uh she was very I, I think she got the general idea of what a podcast was. I explained to her that it's sort of like a radio show that you can listen to at any time. So it's, it seemed like she got that. And I played a little bit of other episodes of us just so she sort of gets a little bit of, uh, of a vibe. So she's, she's on the email list in short. No, I thought she did really well. I did enjoy, um, she thought you were part of an organization. I thought that was just a funny line <laughs> at the end. Like, but, um, when you were, yeah, that was good. But, but no, I, I appreciate it. I liked your point. If we just want to jump into it. Um, I mean, she gave the stories, and it sounds like they weren't, like, in dire straits, I mean, during the Depression, not that they were rich or anything, but, um, you know, they didn't sound like they were, you know, literally missing meals or something, but just some of the stories about, like, how few bedrooms they had, uh, how her mom had her make her clothes, like, that just seemed kind of foreign to me, like, just making your own clothes, um, the shoe one, right, they stuck newspaper in their shoe, and I kind of liked your comment, like, just doesn't seem like that would last very long. Like, they could have felt, I don't know, thought of something different. But, um, yeah, it was just kind of interesting. I just enjoyed hearing someone's perspective about just, that's not really that long ago, but some of the things just seem pretty foreign to somebody, yeah, living in the 21st century. Matt, what were some bits that stuck out to you from Grandma? Um, Kind of an odd one, but just some of the um, – I guess the detail of the memories of like the different cakes they would have at their birthdays, you know, and um, I guess it made me think about like the things that are really important and the things that are kind of like always important, you know, like, yeah, you might need to stuff newspaper in your shoes because like who needs shoes without holes and whatever when, you know, but like, yeah, birthday cake, like that's actually a really important thing. Cause like, I'm sure that's not like uh yeah, I mean, it's a little more costly or, you know, like, yeah, it takes a little, like, a, little, uh, a decent amount of extra effort, you know, when you've got clothes to make and everything else. But, um, yeah, but yeah, you guys I, know, I just thought were, it was kind of a cute little thing. You guys were probably like the spoiled brat she was talking about. You guys probably got 12 different cakes for your birthdays. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Yeah, we continued kind of doing that when we were growing up. Whenever our birthdays would come around, we got one particular kind of cake. Um, so, <laughs> uh, a few tidbits. I think we will try to sort of center back on FDR, but just a few more little fun, interesting shout-outs to Grandma. Um, she grew up in Belleville. Belleville was about 40,000 people. Back then, it was about 25,000. I... You know, 26% of Americans were unemployed at the peak of the Great Depression, and I asked if her dad was ever unemployed, and no, he was a coal and uh, ice delivery guy. Uh, so never um, without employment there. The most significant thing I would say that the Depression had as an effect on them, and she does mention this, and I had never heard this actually, was that they did own a car leading up to the Depression, but once the Depression came, um, they could no longer afford gas. And so it just sat in the garage, and they played in it. Apparently there were some nasty wasps in it, and it just rotted away inside the garage. So that was kind of the most explicit effect that the Depression had on them. So 
Okay. Let's go ahead. We'll tuck that off to the side here next to our favorite whiskey. Come back to that and sentence our focal point FDR first fireside chat on the bank crisis. Matt or Ross, what do you guys know about the fireside chats in general? I mean, was that FDR's podcast? Was that something that was streamed on Netflix? How did people do it back then? I know it's just, it was like a podcast that was live. And instead of on the internet, it was just on the radio. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, very, did, very hipster. Only he did only start fireside chats, right? Did he call them fireside chats, or was like that what the media called them? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know um, at all. Um, so, hmm. Yeah, very comforting idea to kind of crowd around the fire, listen to what the president has to say versus something like Twitter. And in fairness, you know, both President Trump, both President Biden, they both post on Twitter. And I'm sort of skeptical to the extent that Twitter is the most or anything on social media is the most relaxing method to consume information. So, yes, somehow that seems a little less intimate than a fireside chat. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just put your Twitter phone in the fire. That's probably a better, (laughs) better way to manage that, I would say. Okay, so. Uh, On the bank crisis, on the banking crisis, uh, this was March 12th, 1933. It did not take him two months to give a fireside chat because, obviously, presidents were not inaugurated until March back then. Duh. Here's a little bit of his speech that we're going to focus in on. Um, First, describe a little bit. The banks have just gone on a four-day national holiday, right? So for four days, you cannot go and withdraw any of that $179 that you had, all right? Just like the scene from It's a Wonderful Life, they could not get their money from the bank. It was closed. Those $2 bills that George Bailey had in there to make love and reproduce more dollar bills, that wasn't happening. It was four days, all right? And President Roosevelt was trying to ease the people's concerns over this four-day holiday, like what's going on here, what to expect, what's going to be different, all right? So here is jumping in for a little bit of this podcast or this uh, speech. It is possible that when the banks resume, a very few people who have not recovered from their fear may again begin withdrawals. Let me make it clear that the banks will take care of all needs, and it is my belief that hoarding during the past week has become an exceedingly unfashionable pastime. It needs no profit to tell you that when the people find that they can get their money, that they can get it when they want it for all legitimate purposes, the phantom of fear will soon be laid. People will again be glad to have their money where it will be safely taken care of and where they can use it conveniently at any time. I can assure you that it is safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than under the mattress. The success of our whole great national program depends, of course, upon the cooperation of the public on its intelligent support and use of a reliable system. Anything in there uh, from that segment or that speech jump out to you guys? 
I mean, it's certainly, um, I guess, just having a situation where there is high risk for national confusion, um, where, like, a group effort is needed and, like, people need to kind of join together and, like, kind of have a common cause. Obviously, like, COVID comes to mind. Um, and just, uh, yeah, the need for that sort of communication. And I don't recall exactly how or if there was like a specific moment or, or speech that kind of laid out like, okay, this is the shelter in place and this is what's going to happen. And I, I know it happened in a, a lot of different ways in a lot of different states, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know. Uh, I think that's a good comparison. And like, I think I kind of commented on one of the notes, like part of me liked the idea of the chat because it's like the United States president sat down and in just over 10 minutes, pretty clearly explained what he wanted, what he expected, what people should do, and how they benefit. Like, it was pretty succinct. He made his point, And I think it was relatively successful, like, well-received. So, um, like, kind of like when you said there wasn't that during COVID, I feel like that was kind of like a refreshing thing. Maybe that's the difference between a fireside chat and president's tweeting. Um, but just how the message was relayed seems like it probably was a much more effective just yeah, it had a better effect down the road. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, and I think very poignant comparison uh, between, yeah, the speech that charts a path forward, kind of gives people an opportunity to refer back to, you know, are we on the right path since the president's uh, charted this journey or are we off or are we, uh, you know, right and, yeah, if the president is just giving, or any leader for that matter, um, just spurting out a new different Facebook post every single day or several times per day, it's like, you know, how do you keep someone accountable with that? You know, it's all all just sort of uh, nonsense at a certain level, so... And I would say it's almost even a fool's errand to try to keep anyone accountable just because, like, if you're if the message is changing that rapidly, you know, it's it's like, you know, there, there's not a, it's not even a message anymore, you know. Um, but one one cool note I found that um, so after the fireside chat, within two weeks, people returned more than half the cash they had been hoarding. And the first stock trading day after that bank holiday marked the largest ever one day percentage, uh, stock price increase. Huh. Um, That's really so it's, interesting. yeah. So like it really did seem to like have a really dramatic effect. Um, and right away, I mean, obviously there had already been a lot of damage done, um, in a lot of other ways, but, and, and there's, I mean, there's certainly more to, um, the Great Depression than just the banking crisis. I know there are some droughts, there are some other things, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like for a, for, for like a 10 minute, um, speech from a president to have that big of an impact is actually, yeah, really, really impressive. And I think I kind of like the clarity of it too. Like people, I mean, myself included, are not, you know, financial or econ- economy, economy experts, just like, you know, people aren't COVID experts, but like he was able to, I think he even might've said it, you know, I'm going to, I don't remember how he worded it, honestly, at this point, uh, I listened to it a couple of days ago, but 
like he kind of even said, like, I'm going to explain how this is, how this works and why he didn't do quite as good of a job as George Bailey did. Um, and it's a wonderful life explaining why people shouldn't just take all their money out at one time, but he did a pretty good job. We'd love to have some donors to our podcast so that we could, in moments like these, play some of the audio clips from these great cultural icons. All right. So if you want to donate, send us an email, check the website as usual. Wait, wait, I got, I got one right here. I got one right here, Mike. You're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in the safe. Your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Macklin's house, and a hundred others. Why, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best as they can. Now, what are you going to do? You're not going to foreclose on them, are you? That was uh, Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. Warner Brothers is going to be all over us for that one. Yeah, we'll come on, to- Ross. I changed, I changed, I changed three words. Changed three words for safe. (laughs) You guys know the guy in that scene who's the customer and George, he's like one of the first customers and George Bailey tries convincing him like, no, just what you need. And he gets all the money from his account, you know, and then the next woman asks for like $3 to hold her over for the next six months. I'm pretty sure that first guy went to hell. I think he's in hell. <laughs> he's just clearly the biggest certain word. We're trying to you know, keep our show PG so that don't have to put any qualifiers or disclaimers up. Um <laughs> So on that note, yeah, let's dig in a little bit how the Great Depression happened. 1929, my grandma was swaddling around in her diapers at three and a half years old. Beginning on a day called Black Thursday during President Hoover's administration. Why did Black Thursday happen? Investopia.com points out a handful of semi-boring points that we'll attempt to unfold, unwrap here. Investors borrowed slash leveraged heavily to buy stocks. That sounds a lot like the housing bubble of 2008. We'll come back to that one. Excess production, several industries. Uh, the Johnson grocery store was pulling out a few too many, uh, pork steaks, thinking they could keep moving them through the, uh, the <laughs> checkout line. Faltering share prices. I, I mean, I understand what that means at surface level, but as I note there, I don't really know what that just sounds like a superficial explanation. Of course, share prices are dropping. Um, lack of cash on sidelines. Yeah, that sounds like the first point there. Uh, severe droughts in the Southern Plains and Midwest, a.k.a. the Dust Bowl. All right, so if we're going to focus in on three of those things which can, we can understand, sounds like investors borrowing, leveraging heavily to buy stocks, excess production, several industries, and the droughts in the Southern Plains and the Midwest. Matt, do you know what which of those your family is responsible for? Were you guys leveraging too heavy? Were you overproducing like Johnson Family Grocery Store? Or were you the Schaefer Tinoco's doing your best to farm in the dust? Well, the Wiedenfeld side of the family was busy milking cows. Um, they probably milked too much. Um, 
the Schultz side of the family, uh, we're not sure. My grandpa, um, my grandpa was, let's see, he was born in 27, so he was also waddling around in his diapers at this time. And I don't know what his dad did because, uh, his dad kind of left the family. Um, I don't know what his stepdad did either, to be honest. I know, I, so cause his stepdad ended up, yeah, like I knew him, but I don't know what he did. So I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Russ? We were just making too many pork steaks, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, my grandparents weren't born until the 30s. And I I don't, so I guess they were literally born during the Depression. Um, I've heard some cool stories from my grandma, but they're all, I mean, I could share them, but they're all post-Depression, just like kind of cool stories about some of this lived life. Um, yep. I don't have a lot to add for the actual Great Depression there. One thing, one thing I do remember about my grandpa, or I guess hearing about my grandpa, I suppose I never, I didn't really discuss any of this with him, but I know like when my dad was kind of helping him go through some of his finance stuff, like when he was, um, yeah, starting to just deteriorate health wise, like apparently my grandpa just kept tons and tons and tons of cash. Like he didn't, like there's a lot of stuff that he didn't have in a bank and like, or like invested in different things, you know, and it's hard to say, like on one hand, he's kind of like, I mean, he did have a decent amount in a bank, so it's not like he was completely like fearful of banks or grew up in a a world that was completely against that, Uh, but certainly didn't really like seem interested or or seem to like put a lot of faith in like other financial institutions, like, you know, investing in stocks and whatnot or 401k, you know, like that kind of thing. So I don't know. I, it's hard to say whether that was just um, that was just how he preferred to handle his money, or if it was uh, influenced by just his upbringing in the depression. But I may note here: not only were they dealing with the Dust Bowl, but a self-inflicted uh, what's the word <laughs> I'm looking for? Yoke was thrust upon the American people. Prohibition. Took up the first mm. few, the worst years of depression. It was illegal to sell alcohol, I believe, right? Gosh, dang. Talk about hard knocks. Yeah, that's pretty rough, man. Holy smokes. How bad was the depression? Let's hone in on this. At the Dow's Low on July 8th, 1932... Compared to its previous high on September 3rd, 1929, it had lost 90% of its value. I wish we, someone could look up for us right now, like how much value did the Dow lose between like the worst part of COVID and right before COVID? Steve? It was about... It was about thirty oh. percent. I didn't. Oh, right. I didn't okay. I'm not looking this up, but I was following it pretty close at the time. Yeah, I, mean, I would, yeah, I would guess about thirty to thirty-five percent. And we've recovered like all of that, and then some, right? Oh yeah, no, we're we're yeah. ahead of where we were. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and then I have a notes here. It didn't fully recover until November twenty-third, nineteen fifty-four. That's crazy. And that information, ladies and gentlemen, came from history.com. 
At the lowest point of the Depression in 1933, 25% of working Americans were unemployed and almost half of banks had failed slash didn't have the money the accounts claimed to have. I think I think that's the accurate way to put it. Um, people were used to good times, not sucky times. Let's sort of put that in perspective. Okay, here's what was going on in the 1920s here. Okay, life was pretty good for Grandma Tinoco between the ages of zero and three. You know, she she had like a diamond pacifier. That's how good good things were going here. The nation's total wealth had more than doubled between 1920 and 1929. Now, I don't know exactly what total wealth doubling means because I looked up the GDP growth between 1920 and 1929. It's not quite double. Well, not even close to double. I mean, spinning distance, but um, grew from $688 billion in 1920 to $977 billion. That's 42% growth, not 100% growth. So I'm not exactly sure what else wealth could represent here. Um, industrial production had dropped by half, okay, in this free area of depression, stinking really bad. This does not fall under the category of how bad was it, but it's an interesting point that I accidentally put in the how bad was it category. Prior to the Depression, we were the only industrialized country without any kind of social security or unemployment insurance. Crazy. Did the other countries come up with social security, unemployment insurance because of their own depressions? I don't know. No one knows, in fact. I'm sure some of this. We're talking about a little bit about depression, a little bit about how it relates to COVID. What do you guys do with uh, your money when the COVID crash came? Did you guys withdraw all your money from the bank like that bad guy who went to hell trying to close your account and the bank said, hey, I got to feed my family. You can't take all your money, please. Or... Were you the poor old woman who said, I just need $2 to get me through the month? I was just... buying stocks left and right, man. <laughs> I just was trying to jump on the bandwagon and just buy up all the cheap Scott, cheap stocks. Yep, get on that Bitcoin. I was I was really close to buying Tesla at $400. And then it went up to like 2000 and then they had to split the stock price and whatever. I could have made a lot of money if I would have done that one, though. I missed mm. that boat. Would have, could have, should have, sitting in the sun. Russ? Due to some insider knowledge, I actually pulled a lot of money out like a month before the drop. So, <laughs> A.K.A. Landon. Why didn't he give me that insider knowledge? Yeah, that's why. Oddly enough, that's actually true, but it was not due to insider knowledge. It was actually an accident but that's a different podcast that's why landon trouble by the irs that's why landon's not with us tonight he's actually in prison for <laughs> insider training <laughs> training <laughs> yeah i take the road in anything of i'm just gonna leave my money in gonna play it out you know just because mm-hmm. i got other things to do than playing with money and this and that account I answer my uh, transactions in my Excel spreadsheet every month, 
make my transactions to my savings account, bada bing, bada boom, then I put things to bed for the month. It is what it is from then on out. So, got a little bit of a spread between the three of us here. Who knows how we would have made it through the Depression. Don't know if we would have had to. If we would have resorted to resoling our shoes, I would have probably just walked barefoot. That's just more my style. Keep keep things simple. <laughs> Speaking of the money thing, I guess, just a, just a thought then. So, like, I guess we, I mean, we were pretty much told, I guess, since we graduated high school, I guess, like, get money invested now, 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 because you're young and it's going to grow, grow, grow. And in 40 years, it's going to be a lot of money. And also, like, the, you know, oh, let's, let's write it out. But, I mean, like, we're 30 years old, so it's got plenty of time to rebound. But at least at that time, people probably... Maybe not, I guess. I don't know if they had it drilled into them quite as much, you know, invest, 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 because it's going to grow. And then I do feel like it probably would have been scarier, like, you know, for me during COVID, like my, the, I worked for, I worked for a hospital system and they cut some benefits, but overall I didn't lose that much. So it's kind of like, well, it's kind of easy because it's got plenty of time to, I mean, 30 years to recover. And like, I can still support my family on the amount of money I'm being given. But like, if you literally were afraid of, you know, how are we going to get dinner next week? And, you know, I've got 500 bucks in the bank, like, and they're telling me that could be gone. Like, I feel like there'd be a much stronger pull back to like the FDR and the banking crisis. At least like, I can see why a lot of people might have wanted to, yeah, hoard in his, I don't know if that's exactly if that's all he was talking about when he said that or not, but um, I can kind of see the uh, not pressure, but the kind of temptation to do exactly what he was telling people not to do. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting thought experiment to hone in on this idea of hoarding money, right? Because at some level, I mean, that's logical from like just a very individualistic standpoint. Um, but obviously from a societal, uh, national level, like that, like you obviously you just can't have a modern economy without currency and lots of it and people, uh, having a pretty substantial amount of trust in, uh, the government and the economy. You know, sometimes I think to myself, like, Mike, you need to get some assets, like, well, okay, I mean, bank accounts are technically assets. You need to get, like, some capital assets, like a house or something, right? Because a house, you know, the North Korea comes and invades us, and the economy falls apart. You know, we've all seen Red Dawn. Um And <laughs> all my bank accounts, you know, they go they go zip. But you have a house... I mean, North Koreans have to work a little bit harder to take my house from me. Um, and so it's just an interesting sort of, to bring it back depressional, but it's like. So you think the North Koreans have a harder time taking your house than infiltrating the stock market? Um, Mike yeah. has a lot of yeah, things in his house. No, I. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, no, I get what you're saying, though, like. Like money, it, I mean, it wouldn't even take a North Korean invasion. It would just take 
like some really crazy hacking thing, you know, and all of a sudden there's like bank records and, you know, like whatever. Yeah. Like, I get it. I've always yeah. thought, like, I really feel like I need to buy like 200 acres of land. I don't know. If you talk about assets, you said a house. I, I like, I've legitimately had that thought for like five years. Like, man, I live in the, an area with some of the most fertile soil in the world. So, like, that is going to have value because people need food. Like, yeah. no matter what happens, that is going to be worth money. But. Yeah. I guess, I guess kind of the more, the finer point that I kind of want to focus in on and see where it takes us is, and we sort of touched on this already, but just this, it's really impressive how people, for whatever reason, I mean, we can obviously hypothesize, um, trusted Roosevelt and, you know, got their money back to the banks um, rather than being uh, fearful um, about the whole thing. And, you know, it's like what other sort of um, global crises uh, are we could we be handling differently uh, if we responded to it in more of this social way, right? I mean, the things that come to mind is climate change and, uh, and COVID. Um, yeah. And we sort of also touched on it before too. It's like, oh, you know, you had this just these very poignant, clear, um, communication with a vision and that perhaps having this way of, organizing people's minds in a in, in, in an organized way. You guys made some notes on the speech itself here. Um, how about let's let's visit some of those notes from the speech outside of just the excerpt uh, that we read through. I might want to throw some other random thing out there because like when people hear the stock market crashing, in 1933, um, I wonder what that meant to the average person, you know, and would because like and I, and I I think that FDR did a great job of like kind of just explaining the basics of banking and how it works and how it applies to an average person. Um, but like they would have had no like how many people really would have known what a stock market is and how it works you know like I don't know it, to me that just seems like it would have been a remote thing for people in that day and age just because like 401ks were probably never like no one had a 401k right like you know laborers were lucky to get either 50 cents uh, a day and you know whatever. Um, I don't know. I guess, like, to me, this seems like such an abstract threat to people. Like, maybe even more so than COVID was for us, because, like, we all know what a disease and an illness is. But, yeah, I guess, like, what is a stock market crash? Like, that, to, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I guess that, that would seem very scary. Steve, uh, Steve just sent me a little something here that provides a little bit of interesting insight. Um, I just Googled percent of Americans invested in stock market in 1929. Guys, and this is from uh, seuc.texed.net. Ooh, .net. That's probably right. 
Yeah, you can definitely trust they're not out to make money. They're just putting Times New uh, Roman information out there. Looks like some sort of college uh, uh, PDF here. Percent of Americans invested in stock market in 1929. Guesses? 14. I was going to say 10%. Yeah, Matt, on the money, 10%. Uh, what up? Let's go ahead and look up real quick. Compare it to modern day. We're looking at uh, maybe 55% according to the first uh, result under Forbes. So, yeah, 10% of Americans. And they were probably the wealthier ones, right? I mean, poor people don't invest in the stock market. Yeah. So, yeah, the interesting, interesting thought there. Well, you know, it sort of like goes back to what my grandma's saying from another sense as well is that, yeah, I mean, my grandma's family sounds like they were, <laughs> I mean, they were obviously poor, but everyone was poor, which means that they were middle class, essentially. Um, random thought that's relevant sort of just makes me, makes you think a little bit is just the role of, you know, imagine if, the world looked the way it did for my grandma, but over in China, you know, their world looked like it does for us today with all this different technology and all these different access and natural resources. People go create. Oh, but my grandma also had like a smartphone. Like, can you imagine like, how different the depression would have looked just simply on account of being able to see other people with more than you? Um, but like my grandma was saying in the interviews, like, well, everyone around them was in pretty much the same, uh, same situation there. It's like, gosh, it's like <laughs> that. Yeah. I don't know if people consider enough the, the damage that seeing other people's lives on social media, uh, can do to someone. I mean, I think there's a lot to that just in general, like, I mean, like, she didn't seem to have that many negative memories of the Depression. Now, granted, she was, what do we, you, we made it very clear, like, she was ten, about 10 years old, because our, uh, no eight, argument eight, at the beginning. Eight to 15, essentially. Seven and a half, I believe it was. But, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, like, I mean, there's just, I mean, there's that point. I mean, you said it pretty well, so I won't repeat it, but, like, I think there's a lot to that. Um, but I think there is something to, like, just the more we get, the more we want. And maybe that's a little bit on the, hoarding mentality that FDR was opposed to, but it made me think of something. So um, the Grapes of Wrath, right, pretty classic novel set, I believe, in pretty much the same time period uh, about a family that they were tenant farmers in Oklahoma, I think, um, and they get pushed off the farm. So they moved to California looking for work and can't find any. Um, and it's, I don't know if you guys have read it or not, but it's actually a really good book. Um, and it just really... I, th- I think accurately, but very, it's very descriptive on what life was like for somebody that had to live through that. And I mean, they're just, this family's dirt poor to the point where they pack up all their belongings in the back of a pickup truck and they just drive to California hoping that they can find work. Um, and it just, you know, we reading about it just kind of changed my perspective on what it really means to live an impoverished life. But I remember one of the lines from the book was the, her name was Ma. And I, th- I think I'm, I'm, I can't exactly quote it, but it was like, if you really need something, you should ask a poor person. Um, and I just remember that struck me a lot 
like just the mentality some people have as far as because in the book, these people, they they kind of live in community with uh, they end up in community with other similar people in similar straits. And they just kind of help each other out. So kind of talking earlier, like the need to kind of collectively come together, whether it's to end the banking crisis to end COVID to end climate change, whatever it is like, that's just how those people were living. And this that line. If you need something, ask a poor person really struck me just in kind of in a kind of a sad way. As we get too much, we think we need more. Something else that sort of struck me about grandma's uh, chat there was, um, you know, she explained how her mom, well, I guess mom and dad, it sounded like, had voted for President Roosevelt um, the first two times. And I think the third election, my great grandma said, <laughs> uh, I think it was, Nobody's good enough to be president three times. Something, something to that effect. So she did not work the elections, uh, like she had the previous, um, ones. But my, asked my grandma, you know, why her family, why her mom voted Democrat, like, and she said, it wasn't like an, an accusatory way. It's just, curious what her answer would be, you know, particularly for that time. And she said, well, Democrats did more for the people. And I mean, it's obviously understandable why, well, I mean, clearly that <laughs> that's what President Roosevelt was famous for. But at the same time, it's not like my grandma's family were like looking for handouts by any sense of the word. I mean, they're clearly <laughs> doing pretty good, you know, doing their best on their own. And it's that in turn reminds me of the attitude of um who is it? The Benedictines who say something like praise if everything depends on God and work as if everything depends on you. And it it gets at this just I think very real idea. I imagine how much more sympathetic so many different people would be if um that were the attitude, modern day attitude of just being straightforward, like Democrats, right? Because, I mean, it's still the same thing. Democrats tend to be more associated with government and provisions through government uh, strategies. And, yeah, what do you guys think about that? I'm not really sure what the question is. What do you think about the significance of, um, cause even though my grandma didn't say it, it seemed to be something along the lines of, yeah, I mean, you know, it's great if the government does as much as possible to help people out, but I mean, we're still also gonna bust our guts to do whatever's necessary to, you know, have, have a good life under our own bootstraps and, that doesn't seem maybe I just don't know enough Democrats, but um, it doesn't seem like the attitude of the modern day Democrat was sort of what the <laughs> the classical Democrat, if you will, was. It was like, yeah, I mean, the government helping people out is a great thing, but we're also going to bust our guts to do whatever necessary to have a good life uh, through our own means. So do you guys think yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, I think that that type of, of 
Democrat is certainly still present. I don't know, like just thinking about how a number of my like coworkers have talked about politics. I don't know exactly how all of them have voted, but just kind of hearing bits and pieces, like you can kind of put things together. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, we're all PTs and we all like are doing okay for ourselves and certainly are, yeah, like aren't going to be in dire straits. And yeah, I don't know. I'm sure a lot of them are more liberal minded. So I, I don't know. I think that that attitude might be more common than you think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's a fair sort of description. Um, but I think maybe what you see here in the speech, you know, President Roosevelt says, talks about cooperation. So at the very least, even in his language, there is the emphasis for taking responsibility and cooperating and uh, sort of like, uh, you know, behaving ethically, it seems like. Where I don't know that 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 part being more public and pronounced about that, while at the same time, you know, advancing the Democrats sort of more government provision ideals is is also taking place. So are you saying like the politicians aren't as because um, it sounds like what you just mentioned was that like FDR was saying you should of course you should take care of your your basic things. But for the situations that that can't be the case, then we're going to help you out. You know, whereas like now it seems like there's not that prior message from politicians or there's less uh moral exhortation if you will uh sure yeah okay yeah i think think part of that might be like the twitter age because i think i don't know i feel like a lot of that might be more in like the messaging you're hearing from the politicians but that might be a little bit more of the the twitter age trying to get like sound bites out there type thing you know what i mean like i'm gonna say this because it sits well with a lot of people as opposed to challenge them in a way that might not be quite as popular, you know, which maybe if you had 10 minutes, like FDR did to actually sit down, like, I guess, so I guess I'm comparing, like, if you're trying to get people on board with something in a 10 minute speech where you can kind of give some context and explain why it's actually going to be beneficial, it might be a little easier to kind of issue that exhortation or that challenge as opposed to, hey, I've got, you know, three sentences on Twitter because that's all people are going to read. I kind of just have to say a certain thing. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, no, that that does. Can you imagine if the president today said, okay, we're going to initiate this uh, $3 trillion plan to prevent heart disease, and we're going to invest, you know, $5 trillion in research and three trillion dollars in uh programs to teach children to eat less, right? Man, I don't even know. Maybe that stuff still exists, but <laughs> you know, or to um well I was gonna say something on like uh chastity. That's sort of just an interesting different beast in itself, but no. I don't know. Some something to think about. Just the idea of the, like, well, you kind of, I mean, it's a little bit different thought, but like, I don't know, like, I totally, I think I put it in one of my notes, like, so I actually, I mean, I totally buy everything FDR said about, you know, we can't just pull out of the banks and, um, 
again, I quoted or I'm sorry, I played the clip from It's a Wonderful Life with George <laughs> Bailey explaining why, you know, you can't just take all your money out of the bank. So like I've personally benefited from that. Right. Like I have a mortgage, so I couldn't have just bought my house. So I benefited from other people putting money in banks that then I could use to pay for my house. So in a lot of ways, it's like not only do I get it, but like I have reaped the benefits of that model. But at the same time, and maybe this is the Ron Swanson in me, like what he kind of and I, I don't have a, a ton of context for his hoarding comment. If if I was just pulling money out of banks or if there was more to it than that. But um, part of me was like, you can't tell me what to do with my money. Like part of me was like, heck, yes, I'm going to pull it out and go bury my gold in some undisclosed location because I don't know, just got a little bit, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but it's like, man, you're just putting a lot of faith in this system. If it, I don't want to say on a whim because obviously this was a um, exceptional situation, but if the president can just say like, yeah, we're, you can't pull your money out right now. Like we're going to do a banking holiday, all that money that you put in there, you can't touch it. Like that's, I don't know. Part of me was a little bit like, dang, like that is a little bit scary that we put that much trust in a system that can clearly, you know, not it's not perfect, you know, as we see in the Great Depression. I mean, a lot of a lot of very similar things just happened with COVID, though. You know what I mean? Like you're talking like, oh, no, you can't go to work now. Yep. Yeah. Just trust us. Like you can't go to work. Just trust us. You're, you're, we'll, we'll find a way to make it okay for you, but like, you're gonna have to, whatever. You're gonna have to do it, you know, it, yeah, I don't know. I guess like to me, it, we all had to do that, you know? <laughs> I suppose like it's a little different because like, instead of the president saying, hey, it's not gonna be helpful if you do this, it was more or less like, nope, everything's like literally shut down. Like you, you know, the doors of your workplace are locked, you know, and, and you can't, you just can't do it. Um, I guess, yeah, to kind of make a, I mean, just to jump off that a sec, yeah, then, I mean, like, there was companies in, in Springfield that, um, so, like, I worked for a hospital, so obviously that was not shut down, but I had to make a lot of changes and make some cuts and stuff, but, um, like, there was businesses that stayed open because they're like, well, yeah, like, we're going to pay the fines because otherwise, like, we'll go out of business. So, anyway, I just, I, I guess that is kind of a fair comparison that we just lived through it, and I think, like, the Maybe the harder question is like, I mean, in some ways we have to, we have to make personal sacrifice. Like if you're going to kind of juxtapose personal liberty and also like a responsibility for all, all the people, like sometimes those ideas are going to come in conflict with each other. And it's one of those things that's like, I feel like where you fall, I mean, most of us are probably I don't know. I feel like maybe slightly selfish enough to like where you fall on those. You're just going to depend on which one you need more on a certain issue. You know, if you're not in the dire straits, you're going to really say, I want the personal freedom. And if you are, you'll probably be very for, you know, more government. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty fair uh, assessment for kind of the plurality of, of instances. I mean, people will, I mean, I'd like to think of myself that, I would still do the right thing for the most people, even if that puts me worse off. But I think something else to keep in mind that people don't consider often enough is how far removed our society is from the natural state of things, right? Like, 
the natural state of things being like we mosey around in tribes of a hundred people and you know the family unit is that's just all you know it's your family and 15 other families and that's it that's your world and you hunt and maybe collect some berries and grow some corn maybe and and that's it we evolved to manage that fairly well like it, it just that comes very naturally to us whereas now we live in this just very abstract world that has built on layer after layer of agreements and stipulations and values and right all these just very tenuous things and it's that thought i think when appreciated in its entirety and and accurately should fill us with both like a sense of wonder i think towards the world that we have but also a certain sense of like apprehension of just how fragile the world is and not saying that that you know dismisses the um significance of different political or social conversations but should put them in perspective at the same time too it's like yeah these are important questions but it this there is a certain like man boy we really have it well off to be making these sorts of you know, uh, decisions between, between these two different things, right? To live in a world that supports eight some billion people, um, who all live to be, I mean, global. I don't know what the global life expectancy is. 60. Um, like, man, that's crazy compared to the natural state of things. It was a hundred million people living to be 27. Like that, I think, I don't know, I think that's a very synthesized way to to put things, if you will. Just, uh, uh where was I going with that? Maybe there's something interesting in there you guys got. Well, according to ourworlddata.org, the, the global life expectancy is 72.6 years. That's way higher than I expected. That's, huh? that's higher than I expected, too. We're doing great. Cheers. Cheers to humanity. Cheers to us. To kind of make a, to riff off that just for a second and to make like a practical, to to make a more practical observation on it as well. Like, I think kind of like to blow your minds, like it just shows you how dependent we are though of one another today, or maybe we weren't in the past. So, and I mean, I remember hearing Bishop Barron, a bishop in out in Los Angeles talk about like, he kind of used the example of grocery stores, like, right, like food is such like a base level. I mean, it's literally like one of the, few things we need to survive like one of the simplest most base things we need and like yeah if there's a global crisis and like grocery stores shut down like you can't get it like that's how dependent we are on other people and i mean somewhat jokingly like i think toilet paper during covid was like another good example of i mean right again something you need for an incredibly just basic life function and i mean People probably laugh and think, oh, so simple to make, like, right, who's, it's a blue coat, some nobody's sitting in a factory making toilet paper. Anybody could do that. And yet at the same time, like, people panicked, you know, because we didn't have toilet paper. Um, and I don't know, it's just like, yeah, I mean, that's more of a specific example, I think, it's trying to 
bring home a broader point, but it is kind of a scary thing, whether it was the depression and the banking crisis and all that, or a, a pandemic of COVID. But um, yeah, it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. One, one, ex- well, one experience I had recently about the dependency stuff was, so I, I bought a house recently. Asset. And you, asset. <laughs> hard asset. That's not going where anywhere. North Koreans, good luck. I've got a monkey wrench underneath my bed, and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> you just told them where your weapon was. That was no! mistake number one. Right. Yeah, that's what they think it is, Ross. I keep my point. monkey wrenches in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> I just trust everyone and that everything will be fine. No, but but so on the trust that well, actually random little thought. 1929, United States life, United States life expectancy was 58 years. Good chunks of the world did not have data, but Russia was 38.9 years. 30. India was 20, India was 29.3 years. So this is, uh, 1920, yeah, the, like 1929. Yeah. yeah, cause not every country has data for every year, but somewhere in like a three or four year, give or take. But yeah, so going through all these papers to sign and buy a house, each one of these things I have to sign is is like 10 pages long. There's dozens of things you sign at this. And even before you even go to the closing, you're signing all this. And like, there's no, there's just no feasible way you can read all of it and like understand every detail of, of things you're agreeing to. Um. And even if you did, like, what power do you have to change it? Like, you're not, you can't just change the wording of every document you don't like unless, and just say, oh, unless we do that, there's no deal. Cause no realtor is going to work with you. No person's going to sell you their home if you kind of infinitely rearrange these things. So I guess the point is, is like, like, and what, what I think Mike had an interesting point too, because there's so many layers of systems and policies and, institutions, whether it's banks or um, legal things, you know, state laws, federal law, all this stuff. Um, yeah, like we really do have to just just blindly trust a lot of people and a lot of things. And Stays like, we, oh, sorry, yeah, well, just because there's no we like we almost have no choice, like because if we were to rebel against everything that we weren't a fan of or it would be a, yeah, it would just be a, a, that you wouldn't have energy to do anything else, you know? Yeah. I mean, to, I mean, and even like to make that even scarier, like even if you get that house paid off and it's yours and you've lived there for 20 years and you've got everything under control and you've got your, you know, plot of corn in the backyard and vegetables you can eat, the government can still take that away. What is it, like eminent domain or whatever? And I'm sure there's, certain stipulations they have to meet and you could probably try to fight it in court, blah, blah, blah. But like, even then it's not like safely yours. You know what I mean? So real quick, excited question too. So we talked a lot about the banking crisis, but we've got the great depression. Like what else did FDR do before he finished? Like he did the national banking holiday did like, what other things did he do to get us out of the depression? Let's look to the notes. <laughs> <laughs> He sent us to war. That, that that ended the depression. How did it end? Here we go. 
That is what I wrote. Four-day bank holiday, as we said. Passed the New Deal, which consisted of these parts. Relief for the unemployed. Recovery of economy back to normal levels. I don't know what that, I mean, I know what that means, but not in practicals. Reform of financial system to prevent repeat depression. Yeah, bunch of abstract jargon. Sounds like Donald Trump. I'm just going to fix it. It's going to be great. <laughs> we'll be fine. Um, Democrats, of course, supported the associated legislation. Conservatives were split. They wanted people to suffer a little bit, get get their stuff figured out on their own. They caused this. <laughs> we give you give you a fish versus if we teach you a fish. Exactly. It turns out different. We actually care more. Anyone have any other insight? Civilian Conservation Corps was, of course, part of that. For putting people to work, yeah. Do you guys, did you guys have any banks near you or post offices near you growing up that had, like, the big murals? Maybe. You know oh, okay. I guess not. Really? Yeah, there were a few around here. I, re- I remember really uh, liking them, always sort of being enchanted by them, if you will. So what is the Civilian Conservation Corps? Well, I know they built yeah. parks, and I know they Murals, built some lodges, I but, think, like, what else do they do? Well, they built lodges, developed trails, they gave birth to Smokey the Bear, um, who at that point was just a wild bear, and so they put pants and a hat on him. Um, <laughs> well, right, they sort of got us into smothering wildfires. They didn't know any better. They didn't know that some fires are good fire. But, um, yeah, built beautiful lodges and put people to work and learned how to uh, do that sort of thing. So there, there's a couple of beautiful lodges close to me here that I remember hiking at growing up and admiring the architecture. Um, yeah. That'd be interesting to uh, contemplate. Well, of course, today it's different because back then there were no jobs. So the government had to make up some jobs, right? Now it's like, well, this is sort of strange with a situation where it's COVID because there are plenty of jobs available. Um, but for some reason, the government has given out lots of money. So obviously some people sort of need, need to wake up time to time but yeah and i'm not sure how the average man or woman today would uh do with the civilian conservation corps maybe if they had a smartphone break or a twitter break honestly i think a good portion of america would probably be too fat to like do that you know what i mean i don't know like <laughs> like hey, that's I mean, a legit it's a legit thing with the military, though, because there's, I don't know, basically World War II era, like 90% of men fit, like, the physical requirements, and now it's only, like, 58% or something. I I have no, I'm making those numbers up, but, like, I know it's drastically lower in terms of just, like, there are some people literally just too fat to be in the military, and they just, like, recruiters just won't even look at you, you know, so mm. I think for the civilian service, you know, like if you're building trails in the mountains, like it can't be a... Hey, 
Matt, not all trails need to be strenuous. We need some simple little quarter mile (laughs) trails around the visitor center too. All right. All right. That's fair. (laughs) Um, so let's begin bringing it home a little bit, shall we? We've been studying up a lot on the different things that Grandma Tinoco did in their depression days, putting their car away forever, wearing uh, newspapers in their shoes, and making their clothes. One thing I didn't mention, um, there was the rag man. People used to go homes to homes buying rags. As my mom wrote here in this email, kind of filling in some additional depression memories, Grandma and her siblings would work hard to find some miscellaneous scraps of cloth to sell the rag man for some extra money. So here's going to be the question going to bring us home. That's going to leave our people wanting more. If a depression of 2029 were to come around, we have our own Black Thursday, we lose 90% of our stock market wealth. Give me, give me two strategies, your family, substantial strategies your family is going to take to reduce living costs. Um, and one, uh, let's just say, uh, one positive you would foresee in something like this happening. So just to clarify, they sold rags to someone just for money. Yeah. I would sell all of Claire's clothing. The rag man. And that's monster. No, I, okay. no, I think, uh, I mean, we'll have a baby by then. Well, I guess 2029. If it happened more recently and we still had a baby, we'd have to go cloth diaper. I think that would be, you know, yeah, that would just be a strategy we'd have to employ. Okay. There's a $200 a year you've saved. <laughs> I mean, we would probably go pretty heavy like we have a big yard so probably get into like gardening and stuff to get more of our food not bought at a grocery store yeah one for me i think for sure off top my head would be uh climate control i think dropping climate control would be one of the first things i do i already um, i've cut back a little bit on my ac a couple summers ago i only turned on my ac once or twice now granted i live in an apartment so i do get advantage from the laws of physics from my neighbors. So I don't know how I would do in an actual house where you just adjust to the environment. Growing up, our thermostat said 95 degrees. I remember one summer because our AC was off for the whole summer. Made a man out of me. Um, So, yeah, I'd say climate control would be a big thing that I would do. I already don't have hot water at my place, so... I'd be I'd be covered and covered there. I mean, I would also start building things like mm. like so we just built a swing set for Thomas and Catherine, my kids. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said their names. Black that out. Um, <laughs> but no, we built a swing set for our children uh, this summer. It was like it was a good time. It was fun. My dad's pretty good at that. My wife was an engineer, so she's good at that. I kind of just swing a hammer. But um, I feel like it was like, oh, like you know, it was a lot cheaper to do it our own. We didn't have to buy a kit because um, Julie kind of designed it herself. But anyway, just like basic things, like tables, like stuff like that. I don't know. Mine would be like the guy in the Patriot when I sit on it, it just cracks and falls. But um, 
I feel like people can't do like basic things today. So if you can just get good, I mean, maybe it's Mike Rowe talking here, but if you can get good at some sort of trade, you'd make a lot of money. Probably using my bike or walking transportation a lot more would be, but I don't know. Reality, well, I don't know. Gas would probably explode in price, so that probably would would make sense. Most people are too fat to do that, probably though. <laughs> yeah, Matt, you're such a body shamer. Gosh, Sorry. You, should, you should cancel Matt. Okay, one positive thing. Oh, oh no! Obviously, I'd get rid of my smartphone. That'd be the number one thing. Get rid of that crap. No more smartphone. No more. No more internet. Definitely. No more. Yeah, I was gonna say no internet for sure. Dang! What's stopping us though? I ask again from canceling these four things. It'd be intense. That'd be like a good little our own Exodus ninety, but I don't know what we'd call it. <laughs> <laughs> no internet, no smartphone, no climate control, no hot water. Exactly, we should maybe do that. Stuff like we could like pick a um, like should we do that as like a an experiment that then we can our teach depression. tell our listen like our tell our listeners challenge. about like not only they interview someone from the depression, we lived the depression. <laughs> I consumed 600 calories a day. Uh, that's not terrible. Ate nothing and but oatmeal. I feel like there's some sort of uh, filtered version of those things, though, that we could do. Climate control, I could go all in on if you guys did it. Of course, you guys are married with children, so that'd be harder. Yeah. <laughs> harder to communicate to your significant others. Pregnant <laughs> wife and pregnant wife in summer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's gonna work. <laughs> don't worry, Claire. We're only gonna do it for a couple months. It's only ninety. He did X is only 112. Well, you guys heard it here first. The speech guys unpacking the depression, going back in time a little bit. Remember what it was like. Mm. Thank you very much to Grandma Sunoco for participating in this episode. She's our As first guest. She was our first guest. And again, you can listen to her on the supplement to this episode, we're calling it, which is going to be posted right alongside this episode on your favorite website, findthegreatspeech.com. Something like that. I forget what a website is. Um, That's <laughs> correct. Findthegreatspeech.com. Find right. um, well, it's been swell. We look forward to talking again with you all back home. Hope you enjoyed it. Stay classy. I can't say stay classy. That's what Brett McKay says. We need, we need a fun sign-off sign. I sort of like closing with the quote because by on our website by Robert Louis Stevenson, all speech written or spoken is a dead language until it finds a willing and prepared here. Have a great night. Ah, uh, I, I think that's perfect. I like that. Okay. okay, so that first one was just a tryout, folks. So here it is officially. Signing off. And remember. All speech, written or spoken, is a dead language until it finds a willing and prepared here. Have a great night.